Welcome to Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy Top 200 Drugs Podcast. This podcast is produced by the pharmacy faculty members to supplement study material for students learning the top 200 drugs. We're hoping that our real-life clinical pearls and discussions from practicing pharmacists will help you study for your next drug quiz. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Week 7, Spring Edition of Rosalind Franklin University's Top 200 Drugs Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Weatherton. And I'm Dr. Patel. And this week we're talking about men's health. So this is going to be benign prostatic hypertrophy, erectile dysfunction, and bladder incontinence. So we'll go ahead and kick it off with our alpha-1 blockers. The first one is terazosin or hydrin. So how does terazosin or hydrin work? Well, the, uh, as far as the hypertension goes, it blocks the alpha-1 receptors, and this leads to vasodilation of the vasculature, reducing the peripheral resistant and reducing the BP this way. As far as the BPH goes, there are alpha-1 receptors on the prostate. So this inhibition leads to a relaxation of the bladder neck tissues, and thus it minimizes the outlet obstruction. So either way, we're hitting our alpha-1 receptor, blocking that receptor, and that causes smooth muscle to relax. Mm -hmm. So that's either in the vasculature, lowers your blood pressure, or on the prostate, where it allows for the urine to flow easier, where the prostate isn't squeezing down so hard. Is that right? Yep. Exactly. Dr. Kane, what are some adverse effects that patients can expect from this drug? So it's an antihypertensive agent, so you'd expect things like dizziness, orthostasis, We can also see some somnolence or sedation with it, muscle weakness, peripheral edema, which is common with many of our vasodilators, and then also impotence. Now, impotence sounds like a scary term, but we actually can see this with a number of our antihypertensives, and it's uh, almost always reversible with withdrawal of the agent. Yep, sometimes we over-relax that smooth muscle, and things don't work the way they're supposed to. Now, on the flip side of that coin, I understand that there's a rare side effect called priapism. What is that? So priapism is an erection that lasts for more than a couple hours. It's painful, and it requires medical treatment. Otherwise, permanent damage can occur. Interesting. Now, I understand that this is a blood pressure medicine, but I haven't seen very many patients on it. Dr. Patel, why isn't this a very popular medicine? Um, the medication is not very popular because it carries high risk um, and it's used in elderly patients, uh, mainly because of orthostatic hypotension. So we want to avoid these agents in elderly patients for blood pressure control. Now, you mentioned orthostatic hypotension. Is that a band? No, it is not a band. It basically is a hypotension that is related with posture changes. So when elderly people try to get up from their bed or there is a sudden change in their posture, it leads to drop in blood pressure. This um, can cause dizziness and um, imbalance in their gait and they can fall. And as we all know, falls in elderly can be detrimental. That does sound dangerous. Dr. Kane, I understand that when this is used for BPH, it's supposed to be taken at night. Yeah, so the recommendation is to take the medication at night. And the thought being is that uh, when you first take the medication, you're going to have a peak effect. So this is where the peak amount of orthostasis will occur. The thought is that maybe the patient can kind of sleep through that peak effect. And in the morning, they'll have less orthostasis. The problem, though, is that a lot of these people are elderly and they have issues with urination. So it's common for these patients to need to get up at night to go to the bathroom. 
So not only are we giving them a medication that gives them orthostasis, but we're recommending that it be given at a time when maybe it wouldn't be best for them to be getting up quickly to use the restroom over the course of the night. That does sound a little backwards. I understand you mentioned getting up quickly. Are there any things patients can do to decrease the likelihood that they'll experience orthostatic hypotension? Yeah, so in patients when they are lying or sitting and they want to start standing up, they should slowly do so and wait between uh, lying down and sitting and then wait from sitting to standing, maybe even brace themselves as they're getting up against a chair or a wall uh, in case they do get lightheaded. Does that effect ever attenuate after a while of being on the medication? Absolutely. So a lot of these medications, terazosin and doxazosin, we actually titrate up the medication over time because the patient does develop some amount of tolerance to the orthostasis. Interesting. I understand they can also drink more water to stay hydrated to keep their blood pressure up, which might help to avoid the side effect, but it might also make them have to get up to go to the bathroom more often as well. Absolutely. By far the worst thing to happen is a dehydrated patient taking an alpha blocker because the orthostasis will be much more pronounced than in a euvolemic or even a hypervolemic patient. Very interesting. So now um, let's move on to the second agent in the class, which is doxazosin or cardura. Doxazosin sounds a lot like terazosin. Are they similar? Yes, when it comes to the mechanism of action, both the medications work the same. However, when it comes to some pharmacokinetic parameters such as half-life, doxazosin has a little longer half-life, so 24 hours versus um, 12 hours with terazosin. Uh, but interestingly enough, both these medications are taken once a day. Now, Cardura, that sounds like a cardiac medicine. Is this often used for hypertension, Dr. Kane? So really, both terazosin and doxazosin, although they have FDA approval for hypertension, we don't use them strictly for hypertension. If we have a patient who has BPH and also has hypertension, it could be an okay agent to pick. Really, the reason is that doxazosin was in a trial called the ALL-HAT trial, which was looking at hypertensive patients and comparing a number of different therapies. What they found was in patients who received doxazosin for their hypertension, there was actually an increased association of heart failure in that uh, arm of the trial, and it was actually discontinued early because of that. We don't use it strictly for hypertension, but we may use it as a BPH medication with a side effect of reducing blood pressure. Interesting. I understand doxazosin or cardura is available as immediate release in XL tablets. How often do you take the immediate release tablets? Daily. And how often do you take the XL tablets? Daily. Ooh, what an improvement. The third medication on the list is tamsulosine. The brand name is Flomax. And this medication is also an alpha-1 antagonist. But because it is a little bit more selective for the type um, 1A receptors, um, which are prevalent in prostate, it mainly is used for BPH. Now, one cool thing about the fact that it's more selective to the prostate tissue is that we don't have to titrate this medication like we do with the other two alpha blockers. So we don't see as much orthostasis with this, so we can kind of start the patient at their goal dose as opposed to working them up over a period of days to weeks. That is nice. So you're saying tamsulosin never causes orthostasis, right? No, that is not correct, Dr. Rutherton. It does cause orthostasis. That's correct. With the potential advantage of not having to titrate the medicine, 
this agent does cause orthostasis as well. So when doctors want to use this very expensive agent, you may be able to remind them that there are generic drugs with about the same side effect profile. It's important to note that this is not FDA approved for hypertension, unlike terazosin or hytrin and doxazosin or cardura, although we would never use any of these medications for hypertension in the absence of VPH. It's also interesting to note that sometimes doctors will prescribe this medication for kidney stones to help patients pass kidney stones, which is not an FDA-approved labeling. Now, the brand name of this drug is Flomax. What do they mean by that? Maximum flow. (laughs) Wow, that's a pretty good name for a BPH drug when those patients have trouble stopping and starting their urinary flow. That's great. And I understand this comes as a capsule. Is it okay to open the capsule or break it or split it? No, it it is available as a 0.4 milligram capsule, and the manufacturer recommends that the capsule should not be opened, broken, obviously, or split. So our next medication is finasteride, and we have two different brand names. One is Proscar, and the other is Propecia. Hmm. What's the difference? So Proscar is indicated by the FDA for BPH, whereas Propecia is about a fifth of the dose, and it's indicated for hair loss. Oh. Ding, ding, ding. Hint, Dr. (laughs) Rutherton. So hair loss and BPH, what do these two diseases have in common, and how does this drug work to treat them? Well, finasteride basically is a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, and what it does is it inhibits the 5-alpha reductase enzyme, which is responsible for converting the testosterone into something called DHT, dihydrotestosterone. The dihydrotestosterone is responsible for prostate tissue development and hair loss. So if you stop the DHT, you're stopping the hair loss as well as the the increase in prostate tissue, and thus it reduces the BPH uh, symptoms. Very interesting. It's important to note that this is for male pattern baldness in men. It's not an approved uh, medication for women. And why is that? Uh, They think that the pathophysiology of female pattern baldness is not related to DHT, whereas in men it is. And the other reason it is not approved or recommended to be used in um, female patients is because this medication is pregnancy category X. So it is contraindicated in pregnancy as well as nursing mother. The active ingredient can be absorbed through the skin, so the female pharmacist or technician, if they're counting the pills on the tray, make sure they're wearing the gloves while handling. And uh, while if the, the female is trying with the partner to um, you know, conceive a child, they shouldn't handle the product as well uh, because it can negatively uh, de- impact the fetal development. Very interesting. And since this drug blocks sort of testosterone's effects, I think it's cool that the adverse effects sort of follow with that. And we see the same sort of adverse effects as we can see in patients with low levels of testosterone, including impotence, a decrease in libido, an enlargement in the male breast or breast tenderness, and problems ejaculating as well. So I think there's a couple important counseling points that are worthy of discussion. Probably the most important is how long it takes for the product to start working. So in patients who are taking Propecia for hair loss, it takes about three months for them to see any effect at all. And in patients who are taking Proscar for BPH, it can take six months or even longer to see any improvement in symptoms. Wow. That's a long time. Is there any way to help patients have symptomatic improvement while they're waiting for this drug to take effect? Absolutely. So the alternative is to use one of our alpha blockers like terazosin or hytrin, doxazosin or cardura, or tamsulosin or Flomax because they work within a week or two as opposed to six months. 
So moving on from agents that cause erectile dysfunction to agents that treat erectile dysfunction, we have three phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors. Now, Dr. Patel, how do these agents work? The PDE5 inhibitors basically inhibits the PDE5, which is responsible for degrading the cyclic GMP. So because we are inhibiting the PDE5, there is a prolonged effect of the cyclic GMP, and the cyclic GMP is responsible for relaxing the smooth muscle and increasing the blood flow. The erection works by increasing the endogenous nitric oxide levels, which this drug would eventually do. And also in lungs, um, these enzymes are responsible for relaxation of pulmonary vasculature. So it probably has some utility then in pulmonary artery hypertension, right? That is correct. So um, the brand names are different when it's used for erectile dysfunction versus when it's used for pulmonary hypertension, but those are the two FDA-approved indications. Now, Dr. Kane, Dr. Patel mentioned some nitric oxide being released. Do these drugs have any important drug interactions? Absolutely. So in patients um, who take nitrates for chest pain, so this would be nitroglycerin, isosorbide mononitrate, isosorbide dinitrate, or any other nitrate, they, they risk having a precipitous drop in their blood pressure if they take both agents together. So too much nitric oxide really opens up the blood vessels and can cause a blood pressure drop, right? Absolutely. Now, I don't know a sensitive way to word this, but I have to ask, if this is used in a male patient with pulmonary artery hypertension, is it possible that he'll suffer from unwanted erections? Absolutely not. So the way that these work is that we have to have that initial nitric oxide release, which is caused by some form of sexual stimulation. So you have to have that initial effect in order to generate cyclic GMP in order to inhibit it, the breakdown of it with phosphodiesterase inhibitors. So we have to have that first step in order for the erection to occur and continue to prolong. Now, as with any drug that decreases blood pressure, um, I know that we see some, some side effects related to that, such as headache, flushing, and low blood pressure. What other sort of side effects do we see with these meds as a class? So just like it was mentioned for terazosin, um, one of the rare side effects could be uh, priapism, so um, unwanted or prolonged erection. There are some other visual disturbances that can happen as well, and there will be uh, impairment in color discrimination, blurred vision, or sensitivity to light. I've also heard patients seeing blue vision, especially with Viagra. So the Viagra if easy way to remember is Viagra is a blue color pill and your vision turns blue um, and that's one of the side effect. And very rarely um, this visual impairment can lead to vision loss. Um, and another very rare side effect is hearing loss as well. Now speaking of Viagra, which goes by the generic name Sildenafil, if this agent causes a drop in blood pressure that makes the patient pass out, is that called Viagra Falls? No, Dr. Rutherton, I don't know about Viagra Falls, but I do know the brand name is named after Niagara Falls, and that is a true story. So I've heard that Viagra the blue pill does cause this blue vision change that you talked about, Dr. Patel, and I've also heard that that's because it inhibits phosphodiesterase 6 in the eyes more so than some of the other agents in this class and results in that blue vision change. That is correct. So I think one interesting thing to talk about is that we have two different products. We have our erectile dysfunction product, which goes under the brand name of Viagra. Then we have our pulmonary hypertension product that goes under the brand name of Revatio. So our next agent is Vardenafil. The brand name is Levitra. 
And unlike our other two PDE5 inhibitors, this does not have an FDA-approved indication for pulmonary hypertension. I also understand that this one doesn't really cause the blue vision, so it might be a good option for patients who are bothered by that when taking Viagra. And interestingly enough, uh, this medication is not only available in regular tablet, but also in ODT form, and it contains peppermint flavor. Mmm, yummy. So similarly to sildenafil or Viagra, uh, the onset of action of Levitra is about one hour, and it lasts a, a little bit longer between three and six hours. Now, I also understand that there's a third agent in this class called Tadalafil or Cialis. That's the last contender. So in pharmacy school, I learned that kind of the, the street name, if you will, for Tadalafil or Cialis was the weekender. And the reason is that unlike sildenafil, Viagra, or Vardenafil, Levitra, Tadalafil lasts a full 36 hours with one single dose. So you can take it well before the time that you're due to Cialis. So the other interesting thing about Cialis or Tadalafil, in addition to the fact that it lasts so much longer, is that it's FDA approved to be given as a once daily formulation where you don't have to plan your dose around your sexual schedule. That does sound handy, although I will say that most insurances won't cover it. And I also heard that the medication is recently approved for the treatment of BPH. Is that correct, Dr. King? Yeah, so it's approved for BPH, for erectile dysfunction, and for patients who have both BPH and erectile dysfunction. Interesting. Killing two birds with one stone. And I also understand that in addition to those two indications, the, under the brand name Adserpa, Tadalafil is approved for pulmonary hypertension, but it's got a much nicer dosing schedule than Rivadio does, and it's 40 milligrams once a day. So kind of changing gears here, our next two agents are going to be medications that are used for uh, neurogenic bladder or uh, urinary incontinence. Uh, the first one is called oxybutamin, and the brand name is Ditropan. So like Dr. Kane said, this medication is um, used to treat the symptoms related to neurogenic bladder. The symptoms can be urgency, frequency, leakage, or urge incontinence. The way it works is essentially it's an anticholinergic agent. So it calms the urinary bladder and it helps alleviate some of the overactive bladder symptoms. And it does this by relaxing uh, some of the smooth muscle of the bladder that allows the bladder to be filled more. And it also decreases some of the contractions of the bladder, which can sometimes signal the patient to feel like they need to urinate. Now, that sounds like a handy use of an anticholinergic medicine, but I understand that medicines in this class generally have very similar side effects. What sort of things can patients expect when they're taking an anticholinergic like oxybutynin or ditropan? So think about all the anticholinergic side effects that we have discussed in previous recordings, such as headache, dizziness, bird vision, dry eyes, xerostomia, which is um, dry mouth, constipation, nausea, or um, somnolence. Dr. Kane, what kind of dosage forms is this available in? It's kind of interesting. We have a number. Uh, the main one that most of our uh, listeners are going to see are Ditropan tablets, which are immediate release, or Ditropan XL, which is extended release. We also have Ditropan syrup. We have a topical gel called Gelnique. And then finally, we have a newer uh, product called Oxytraw, which is a transdermal patch that you apply twice a week, and this is actually now available as an over-the-counter product. Is there anybody who shouldn't use Oxytrol, Ditropan, or Oxybutynin? 
So just like many of our other anticholinergics, because of the way it works, we should avoid it or even consider it contraindicated in patients who have uncontrolled narrow-angle glaucoma, gastric, or urinary retention because it's going to make those problems worse. And I understand there's another agent in the class, which is the next drug on our list, tolteridine or detrol. This is used for the same things, has the same side effects in ADRs, and almost the same contraindications. Is that right? That is very correct, Dr. Brotherton. Birds of a feather flocking together. So really there's not much to say about Detrol, aside from the fact that we have Detrol and Detrol LA, which is the extended release version of the product. So moving on to our two over-the-counter products, the first is called Minoxidil. The brand name is Rogaine. Now, Minoxidil, I see the, the beginning of the word dilate in there, and I understand that this drug was actually invented as a drug to treat high blood pressure by opening up the blood vessels or dilating them. And they decided to repurpose it as a hair growth treatment when they realized that their patients were growing some hair. Absolutely. And one of the reasons that we don't commonly use this as an antihypertensive is that it has a number of very unique but very severe adverse effects associated with it. The interesting thing about this over-the-counter hair growth product is that it's approved to be used in both men and women, where it says, Remember, we talked about Propecia. It's only approved in men. Yeah, women can't even touch that one, right? That is correct. So how do I, I mean, how does the patient use this drug? So there's two different types of dosage forms that are available. Um, We have, for men, a 5% foam or a topical solution that contains 30% ethanol. For women, we have a 2% solution that contains 60% ethanol. That's a lot of alcohol. I imagine that could be irritating if it was applied to broken or open skin, right? That is correct. And that's one of the side effects of this product is some paritis or um, local irritation. And so how does this magical medication make people regrow their hair? So we don't know exactly how it works for hair growth. The proposed mechanism is that it increases blood flow to the cutaneous tissue in the scalp which allows more blood flow to get to the root of the hair and allows it to grow. But we really aren't all that sure exactly how it works. So our last agent is kind of different from many of the other agents that we've talked about. This is called Nanoxyl 9. And it doesn't really have a brand name because it's used in a number of different products, all of which are used for contraception. So what is Nanoxyl 9? I understand that it's a non-ionic detergent that kills sperm. So when you don't want to have kids, you say no, no, oxinol, no, nine. It's got no in it many times. So that's how you can remember that it's for people who want no children. The problem, though, is that in people who use this for monotherapy, where they don't use a condom or oral contraception, the failure rate is quite high. So anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of people in a one-year period will have therapeutic failure of this contraceptive agent. Now, that's not very effective. Now, this is a detergent of some kind, so I imagine it kills and protects against all sorts of STDs as well, right? I was wondering about that, too, because I saw the worsidal. What do you have to say, Dr. Kane? When Anoxyl 9 first came out, they actually thought that it would be effective in patients to prevent STDs because it could kill things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, maybe even HIV. The problem, though, was when they studied it in this way, it didn't protect at all, and actually, the patients who use this as their 
uh, monotherapy form of contraception actually had higher rates of STDs. That's interesting. So as a pharmacist, if you see someone in your family planning section uh, looking like they're going to just try to use nanoxin L9 without anything else, maybe you should counsel them otherwise because it's not effective at preventing STDs and it's not great at preventing pregnancy either. Uh, and not to mention the detergent properties can also cause some irritation to the mucosa. So how is nanoxin L9 supplied? So for the most part, people in retail pharmacies may see nanoxinol 9 as an adjunct agent that comes with certain types of condoms where nanoxinol 9 is built into the condom itself. There are other dosage forms though, so as we mentioned, it comes as creams, jellies, foams, gels, things that you would use as monotherapy. We also have something called the Today Sponge, which actually has two different mechanisms. So it does contain nanoxinol 9, which is our spermicide, but it also has a mechanical barrier that prevents sperm from entering the cervix and causing fertilization. So we've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, the first agent we discussed was terazosin or hytrin. Then we talked about doxazosin or cardura. The third agent was tamsulosin, Flomax. Then we moved on to finasteride with two different brand names, Proscar, which was for the prostate, and Propecia, which was for hair growth. The next agent we talked about was the first PDE5 inhibitor, the little blue pill that causes blue vision changes, Sildenafil, or Viagra. The next agent was Verdanafil, or Levitra. And then we uh, finished off the PDE5 category with the weekender, which was Tadalafil, or Cialis. The next agent that we talked about for overactive bladder is oxybutynin, or ditropan. And then we talked about the cousin of oxybutynin, tolterodine, or detril. And then we went to the over-the-counter section and discussed minoxidil, or Rogaine. And finally, we finished with no, 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 no noxinol 9. Well, that concludes Week Seven Spring Edition of Rosalind Franklin University's Top 200 Drugs Podcast. I would like to encourage our audience to give us a five-star rating in the iTunes Store so that other pharmacy students outside of Rosalind Franklin might be able to find us a little bit easier. And with that, I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Weatherton. And I'm Dr. Patel. Study, Study hard. This has been an educational production by the Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast is copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. No participants have any conflicts of interest to disclose. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to treat a particular patient. This information should not be used in lieu of the judgment of a healthcare provider. The theme music for this podcast is an excerpt of Metromix by Cecil, released under Creative Commons.